Hi, it's G3, and this is In Search of Green Marbles. This week, we are talking about the debt ceiling, which is on everyone's mind because we are entering into the 11th hour of negotiations in Washington, D.C. over this very important issue. With me to break down the probabilities and get underneath the headlines and to the green marbles is Weiss's Mike Edwards. And when it comes to policy and politics, Mike is a very astute handicapper, so I very much enjoyed getting his latest take on how all of these issues could play itself out. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode and join me for my in-depth conversation with Mike. And with that, welcome. Mike, there is nobody who I'd rather have with me today to talk about what has played out and what may play out over the course of the next few days. That's only because Matt Gates isn't in your Rolodex. <laughs> that is right. He is most definitely not in my Rolodex. As you have said to me on many occasions, the debt ceiling situation was long expected to be a watched pot. And my leadoff question for you, Mike, is, is the pot still watched or is it actually about to boil and have the lid fall off and have the whole kitchen floor ruined? I'll stand by my prior characterization, which is if, and I mean, if we just go back to why we called it a watch pot in the first circumstances that, you know, the market wasn't going to all of a sudden wake up to something and then panic about it. Right. And that's very much, I think the context we find ourselves in now, which is if I were to characterize the market's attitude right now, I would say if anything, we're running the risk of complacency in the sense that there's now a, I'd say consensus expectation of a deal that gets us through this situation episode, non-crisis, whatever. Manufactured Um, crisis. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Yes. And in a sense, that's what, coming back to the watch pot discussion. It's a, a very, very long fuse and a self-imposed crisis of one's own making that there's been a long, a lot of time to anticipate. And so I think the anticipation has been, let's say, accurate as far as finding a way through thus far. I would, though, and sort of sticking with that complacency risk point, I would say that we're actually approaching a point where I'm increasingly concerned that the market is losing its ability to be a forcing function, meaning sort of have a moment that will actually get attentions. And I don't mean leadership. I don't mean McCarthy and Biden and the folks sort of in the room, but I mean in especially the House that will have folks very concerned that the consequences of not acting very promptly will be severe because it's hard to look at anticipatory stuff, the watching of this pot and see signs of severity. So that, that I think is, you know, I'll I'll stick with the way we previously characterized it, but I will paint that as a risk right now, as opposed to a a feature. What are some of the other notable positives or negatives in terms of how things have played out versus how you expected them to play out? Certainly the right people are in the room and there's staff level engagement on crafting a deal right now. I think that's important because we're not dealing with the sort of sequencing issues of like drama followed by complete breakdowns and inaction and then followed at the last minute by engagement. There's been pretty consistent engagement from a negotiating and frankly, I hope, I don't know this to be the case, but I hope from a drafting perspective as well, conversion from the actual sort of you know, deal points in the room to workable legislation. I think that's important. 
I think also in terms of we've long talked about this being performative and if we were to use the word crisis, that it's it's a crisis and more in the performative sense than than the real one. I think what's been good about or a positive about this has been that we've seen theatricality appropriately, but without hyperbole. And finally, I would say, I think to the extent that there are people who are, whether it's performative or otherwise, who are very upset at some of the deal points so far, for lack of a better way of putting it, the right people are upset. You've seen the progressive left of the Democratic Party object to some of the points that are on the table in terms of, for example, work requirements being proposed for certain benefits and changes to SNAP and Medicaid and things like that. And while I'm without getting into the substance or anything normative about it, it's actually important that you see objections from the far left and from the far right in order to mobilize the center and get to a deal. I do think that the higher probabilities of like sort of tactically are going to run through the center and frankly through bipartisanship than catering to the far right or it's kind of unimaginable given the position McCarthy is in or to the far left and then trying to shepherd enough of the center to that position. So in a way, getting the fringes off is a positive. Well, speaking of getting the fringes off, I do want to level set before we we go down the rabbit hole and, and talk about specific ways in which things can play out here. I have a big picture question for you. Okay. At the end of the day, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, they're both institutionalists. They've both been in D.C. for a long time. They've both achieved success. They've climbed the ranks of their party. And so I'm wondering, if you look hard enough, can't you say that they are ultimately on the same side of this issue. I mean, sure, they're going to appear to be on the opposing side, but they both want to get something done, and they know that they need to give their counterparty enough red meat so that they can sell it to their constituents. Isn't that a fair assessment of this situation in your view? I think partly yes and partly no. The part that is a yes that I'll agree with is that they know that an eventual solution has to be seen as a win-win. The part that I would object to, though, in saying that that they're both institutionalists, I mean, I think that I'm being you know, a little bit philosophical here, but anyone with the level of ambition of these two people to rise to positions of power in their respective parties and government, they're inherently institutionalists, right, in the sense that, you know, you don't light on fire, the building on whose roof you're standing. <laughs> well, I mean, Donald Trump wasn't an institutionalist. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely and not. He got to the, you know, the top of the hill. Well, and I mean, there are lots of things you can say about the way he's trying to get back on that hill by being, you know, per, I guess, performatively non-institutional. Right. <laughs> I will draw a very big distinction between McCarthy and Trump. So in fairness, but I do think that Biden has got to where he is in his very, very long career, by being fundamentally a dealmaker, in some ways a, a gladhander, but also building on a history of bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle in ways that are, frankly, no longer possible, arguably. Whereas McCarthy has come to his position by being a very effective fundraiser, but by being a, instead of maybe Biden as a can-do guy, whereas McCarthy's more of a why-do when we can complain actor in Congress. And so I do think there's a very big distinction there. And I think that's going to be more and more relevant, less in the room, in the Oval Office as they're, or in the, 
in the West Wing anyway, as they're negotiating, but probably more as it comes to actually hurting cats in the way that's going to be required to get votes, regardless of the eventual composition in Congress. And this does get to the, you know, you asked me what the positives have been versus what the negatives versus a prior has been. And I, I do think that the sequencing here is a negative as relates to getting two votes. And I also think that the focus of markets and the media and everybody else on what's happening kind of in that negotiating room is probably a little bit of a negative versus trying to be prepared for both on the one hand, the workarounds, and which in my mind have come way too early to be workable. The workarounds are not workable. And then also on you know, sort of getting ready for the fringe objections that are actually legitimate threats because those votes are required. And the biggest negative then in that framing, as well as in the framing of who McCarthy is versus Biden, is that the Senate is not going first. But as it turns out, the Senate's on recess this week, and then the deadline we're going to push up against is going to be the House trying to get away from Memorial Day weekend. And I'll summarize all of this just to say that, you know, we're recording this on a Tuesday. I think a week from today, Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be the big action days. That's the proverbial 11th hour, which is, in my mind, it's almost a certainty that the 11th hour is when the action is going to be taken. All right. Well, let's talk about how when that day approaches, the things that are probably going to be a possible outcome and the things that are not Okay. going to be in the picture. And we're a podcast here for an investment management firm, right? So let's talk numbers, right? Let's okay. get some actual numbers on these probabilities. I'm going to pose a, a number of different scenarios and you can tell me any number between zero and a hundred. I know you're not going to say a hundred, but you can tell me the likelihood that you think it will play out. Outcome A, the house votes in favor of the discharge petition, which would involve getting some problem solver Republicans to join the Democrats and essentially say, you know what? We are going to evade the rule of right, so zero. 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 Okay. I mean, right, so I don't asymptotically, it's not completely impossible, but asymptotically low. Okay. So discharge petition zero. Moving on here, President Biden's invocation of Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. Very close to zero. We'll call that zero as well. You're calling that um, a zero as well. Very okay. close to zero as well. I'll give you a couple of reasons. But let me say that if it's not zero and this actually happens, and by the way, I think it's a cop-out when strategists and people like that say 3.7% when what they mean is like it's not going to happen. Right. So I'm just me more They're giving themselves that. a little eye. Yeah, a little fudge. Little, little I'll, just, I'll just be more blunt than that. Look, number one, do we find ourselves in that scenario where the 14th Amendment is being invoked and we've created effectively tranches of the U.S. debt, some subject to constitutional challenge and others not, which is a almost unimaginable arbitrage. That from, a, I mean, there are plenty of people toss around the phrase constitutional crisis when they mean many, many different things for the market and particular participants in the, you know, the U.S. Treasury market. That's a legit crisis. Like not knowing what the enforceability or the legal status of newly issued bills and bonds would look, that's a real problem. The government's cost of borrowing is going to go up significantly in that scenario. And that in and of itself is a reason why it almost certainly won't happen. But the second, which is a more procedural consideration is, you know, if they were going to do this, they would need it to be, they would need a very different 
both jurisprudential and judicial context from the one that they've created for themselves. And I'll just boil it down to the Supreme Court is not going to withhold this, uphold this, I'm sorry, as a challenge to the legality of, you know, debt ceiling legislation that has existed for obviously quite a long time. It's just not going to hold up in front of the Supreme Court. And it's almost unimaginable given where we are right now, to sit there for weeks waiting for that challenge to play out. Are you suggesting that the Supreme Court is loath to overturn precedent? Depends on the precedent. (laughs) Depends on the precedent. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on here. All right. So that's two scenarios. I've I've said zero twice. You said zero twice. So the math is is easy so far. This is not going well so far. All right. Let's move on here. Let's talk about number three, a technical default with debt prioritization for things like servicing our existing debt and other essential services such as Social Security and Medicare so as to buy the negotiators more time? Yeah, that I'll say is probably a, let's call it a 10% probability. This to me is your realistic risk realization scenario. And I'll say that what will happen in this scenario is there are a couple of other possibilities for how they could fudge it, right? You didn't say this there. And I'm assuming you're not going to include this as another category and surprise me with it. But Janet Yellen standing up and saying, oh, oops, we found some more funds in the Treasury sofa cushions and we can take this another four days. I'm assuming that, that's there, too. That's there, too. Right. Yeah. So all, I lump all of these into sort of the fudge factor. And I think for each of these, I think that the riskiest point would be if some of the credit ratings agencies downgrade the U.S. as they did in July of 2011. That to me is the path to the market getting significantly concerned about this. And then the secondary impact would be it would be a realization that this government just can't stick to deadlines that are otherwise hard deadlines. Next one, a can kick agreement that buys some time until let's say end of September. Yeah, I think that's, let's call it 30%, something like that where it's it's not the modal outcome in my mind right now, but it is a distinct punt possibility. And I think you're absolutely right. End of September would be, I mean, there are two possible punts, right? One of them is that they do a, they punt for two weeks to buy themselves more negotiating room right now. And they solve this before the summer recess kind of thing. That's problematic for some reasons. The reason I think if they're going to punt, it would be to September 30th is coming back to the win-win possibility. The most obvious win for Republicans is to get guaranteed spending cuts and appropriations changes now by converging the budget process and the debt ceiling process into one thing. And then using that to make, in some cases, things extensible beyond the 2024 fiscal year because you can do that in this context, that would line up a little bit more elegantly. And so I think that is, yeah, I'll go with 30%. Which leaves 60% for the most likely outcome, a last minute deal that puts this issue to bed until after next year. Yeah. Well, let's add it up. Zero, zero, 10, 30, 60 sounds fine to me. Yep. That is in the range of objected to strategists doing things that are close to zero and Numbers that are close to 50 are also, I don't like that very much, but I'll I'll go with 60%. And so this is like the meaningfully modal outcome right now is they do in fact reach a deal. I will say that as a caveat, the how matters a lot here. How they get to that, whether they do it effectively with 
mostly Republican votes in the House or they rely on a very substantial number of Democratic votes in the House really matters. And you didn't ask me this. I'll assert it myself. I actually think that the problem from McCarthy and the reason this will get rocky at the last minute and hence my assertion about market complacency is I think they may very well need to do this. Like Hakeem Jeffries is going to need to deliver more votes than McCarthy himself will. I think that is that is a real issue. And so whether or not McCarthy comes out on the other side of this with his speakership intact remains a very real question that I think the media is ignoring right now because they're focused on who's in the room and what are the negotiating talks and the you know time's running out and all of this sort of stuff without getting to the how many votes can we actually count on question because that's a very you know it's you can't go interview one person and get an answer to that question all right well i'm going to throw a surprise question at oh, you oh goody and by the way when i meant until next year i meant until after the election yes agreed what is the probability that assuming you're right and the last minute deal that puts this issue to bed until after the election what is the probability of that happening and Kevin McCarthy remaining speaker. So the joint probability. Yeah. Less than a third. Less than a third. So you think that there's a very decent likelihood that McCarthy is going to lose his no, job. No. You still have, from our earlier discussion, the 30% scenario of the can kick in which McCarthy's still speaker. Yep. And the 10% scenario of double middle finger, figure out the fudge factors and the workarounds and the unilateral whatnots. And I think he's still speaker there. All right, so that's 40. So that's 40. Yeah. Plus, you know, call it, I don't know, 30-ish percent. I said less than a third. 30. Well, let's call it 30% of 60, right? The 60% no, no, probability. No, no, I meant the joint. I'm sorry. Yeah. I meant the joint probability. So yeah. in the neighborhood of 50-50, yeah. I'm doing my, my cop out because I just think it's very hard to yeah. know within that 60%. I think that a month from now, or even yeah. let's say in October, I think there's still a way, way north of 50 Delta. So comfortable saying McCarthy is much more likely than not to still be speaker. Listen, it's a remarkable thing to say, like, we've inured ourselves to it in this political environment. But to say, like, oh, geez, I doubt he'll be speaker. <laughs> like, that's very, very unusual, right? To lose your job over a, a specific vote or... Over or, a watched pot. Yeah, over a watched pot, right? yeah. Like, to use my, right, my you know, my, of you. Your rephrasing <laughs> of my, my phrase. Yeah, that would be... It's trite to say unprecedented, right? And it is quite precedent in the sense that Boehner and Ryan both lost their speakerships over this issue. But I think that, you know, this is a man who is so singularly focused on maintaining power that, like, you got to give him a pretty decent shot at it. He'll figure out a way. Okay, well— It may be really, really messy for the rest of us, which is my point on complacency, but he may very well. Before we turn to the markets, and I do want to, you know, talk about market implications and all of those things— I just want to get back to the issue of timing mm -hmm. and the complexity therein and how Kevin McCarthy had to make some concessions in order to secure the speakership that complicates that timing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I think, I mean, relative to our trying to put probabilities on a remaining speaker, I think it's a very relevant question. What you're referring to is the, I think, is the, the so-called 72-hour rule, yes, which is that he agreed in taking speak that any legislation he brought to the floor would stay there, would basically have daylight on it for 72 hours before a vote. So that, like, there have been plenty of times when legislation has passed, in, including the, you know, I think most vividly because there were actual images of 
the physical paper on which the legislation was written with notes in the margin, handwritten notes in the margin that became law, right? That it, I mean, it's literally impossible for everyone to have read that because it was written in after being circulated, right? That there's a desire to avoid that and, you know, transparency, which are in and of themselves are laudable things conceptually. The actual slightly more macabre rationale for including this was to make sure that there couldn't be last minute negotiations that cut out constituencies before they had a a say on it. And that absolutely pertains to exactly what we're talking about right now. So let's assume that they don't reach a deal until later in the week or the weekend or something like that. And that June 1 is an actually functional hard deadline. You're getting to a place where they have to pick you either waive the 72-hour rule or you're going to run over the deadline if you abide by the rule. Now, it's a self-made rule. You can change it, but change it in your own risk. These are all places where McCarthy is running the risk of upsetting, the, in particular, the Freedom Caucus, if not the Republican Study Committee, that put him into the position that he's in. So, you know, I would say that that 72-hour rule is very much at risk given the time crunch we're already under. And in any event, you know, something's got to give here. But you could argue that if Secretary Yellen had a little bit of leeway as to when she would declare that, you know, D-Day, that part of the reason why she has talked about June 1st and the like is to amp up the tourniquet on Kevin McCarthy here. Yeah. So the blood pressure is higher or yeah. whatever. I, I would agree. You know, I think that Yellen very much values her credibility as let's not forget, like, Treasury Secretary is most definitely not her first job in a position of power in, in Washington. I think her credibility really matters. I don't think she's blowing smoke because someone told her to. That's not to say that there isn't actually some fudge factor. I mean, to say very precisely June 1st is like yeah. money in the cushions, not. as you but, said. But I don't want our listeners to think that, you know, oh, yeah, that's make believe and it can move. I think once you've set a deadline and then start playing with it, you are a, inherently losing credibility personally, but B, you're destabilizing the process because how do you credibly impose a secondary deadline when the primary deadline was flimsy? And I think that's a real problem. And it's something that, you know, all other things being equal, not at 100% probability, but at very high probabilities, she's not going to want to mess with. All right. Well, let's turn to the markets now. In this scenario that a resolution to this mess occurs... In your view, are we going to get this relief rally on the back of yet another step taken on our wall of worry, or might things play out differently in your mind? At the risk of nitpicking, I'm going to change the question. All right. If we get an orderly resolution, like I want our listeners to be clear, there will be a resolution. If the we, U.S. If, government will issue debt securities again. Okay. So fact. if we do not it, default. Yes. If there's, if, no, if there's no default and it's relatively orderly. And either one of my first two, my 60% or my 30% asserted probabilities are realized. Are we going to get a, a relief rally? There are a lot of inputs into this. And I do think the consensus, you know, sort of framing is, oh, this is the big macro binary for 2023. And once, like all other macro binaries in recent memory, once resolved, it's off to the races sort of thing, right? I don't want to minimize that I think getting on the other side of this question does free up a lot of mind share for more positive and constructive concepts for investors. But from a positioning and trading standpoint, 
I'm not confident that there's going to be some relief rally. In fact, if anything, I'd be inclined to, to fade the concept, if not an actual rally, should it appear. And, and just to be clear, relief rally in equities. In a, yeah, I'm talking about equities. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of correlation to how the dollar trades, right? All other things being equal, you would expect a stronger dollar upon resolution, with the caveat being that, you know, the dollar can also be bid in extreme risk off. And so how you balance that, et cetera, right? Fine. But all other things being equal. So there's a couple of reasons why I'm, I'm taking that contrarian view, as it were, here. One of them is that, you know, you use the phrase wall of worry, and we started by talking about a watched pot. I mean, they can't both be true, right? Like, in my estimation, there's no evident wall of worry here. In order for this, like, the relief rally from a macro binary to occur, we have to have that kind of stretched rubber band concept, the rubber band of anxiety, whereas the market gets more and more anxious, the rubber band stretches more and more, and then once we have the event, it releases and then everything pops higher. This is a flaccid rubber band, as far as I can tell. There's a lot of talk about it. There are a lot of cameras, but there's not that much, like, functional acted upon anxiety. I haven't checked in a couple of days, but the 17? VIX is, yeah, so the VIX is below 20. Yeah. That doesn't mean it can't go a lot lower than this, by the way, just yeah. lest we measure everything by sure. a particular number on the VIX. But the second reason I'm less positive is a little bit more arcane, but I think it's important for our listeners to think about. And that's that when the debt ceiling is resolved from the standpoint of funding markets, it's going to be a liquidity draining event not a flush of liquidity because when the TGA gets replenished, the TGA is the treasury general authority account at the fed. When it gets replenished because treasury is issuing bills and bonds again, then that is effectively going to take otherwise extant funds out of the market and flowing into those securities. And for those who are sort of live in equity world or think about like corporate activity, the metaphor that I would use is imagine a company that is running its working capital really, really tight going into an earnings period. It's drained its inventories. It's pushed its payables as much as it can. It's pulled in all of its receivables in the same way that Janet Yellen right now and everyone at Treasury is trying to find everything that they can to stretch stretch the cash available to treasury, right? Then that company reports earnings, right? Well, guess what? The next couple of quarters, their free cash flow conversion is going to be garbage because they got to rebuild their inventory. They got to, you know, the receivables and payables will normalize again. And that's exactly what's going to happen to to the treasury. You know, it's not going to look as good in terms of cash conversion. And what that really is, is sort of the availability, well, availability, the flow in funding markets, so that's actually a drain to the system, and all else being equal, that's going to raise risk premium. It's not going to be... But all positive. these hedges will come off, right? Isn't there another that's, counter to that? That's absolutely well? the counter. You know, people are not going to have the same put premium in both rates and equity markets. That will probably come off. And, you know, all else being equal, if that takes the VIX, to use your metric before, take if that takes implied vols still lower... And yeah, you'll have systematic funds putting risk on and things like that. From a more fundamental standpoint, the other thing I would say is that let's not forget how we're going to get resolution to this one way or another. Spending cuts. That's right. That's right. And so I'm not sure I would call it a fiscal cliff, but a, a fiscal stair step lower is an inevitable result of this. And so all else equal, I don't think people have paid that much attention to the fact that the emergency status for COVID expired two weeks ago on 
roughly, on May 11th, you've got a couple of things happening in terms of fiscal situations where spending is coming lower and you know, you could see some trimming of GDP estimates and other ways in which that flows through into corporate top lines as well. So these are not big headwinds, but they're, they are headwinds. They can add up, right? Because also you have the student loan situation also. Which is not going to be counted, by the way, in this negotiation. In other words, that going away, is that's still part of the budget because the challenges haven't been resolved. Right. But all I'm saying is that there's going to be restrictive events Absolutely. that occur that spending cuts could further provide momentum on the downside too. That's a one-way train right now. Like I, I would say like less people get a little overwrought about this. That's on a probabilistic basis. That's priced in. Like this is all stuff we know the market anthropomorphically knows is going to happen, but the mechanics upon it being realized. And let's say, you know, this economist here, you know, insert Geordie discussion of whether or not economists matter. This economist here, that strategist there starts cutting their GDP estimates and cutting their earnings. Like those at the margins, I think there's a higher risk of that than any alternative. I would like to end by talking about the Trump factor here. As you well know, there have been plenty of other Republicans who have entered the race, but he is still very much setting the tone. As we think back to your probabilities and read the headlines over the course of the next week, help us understand how Republican House members are going to have to think long and hard about their vote because of Donald Trump. And will his stance create significant pressure on members and will that lead to potentially all sorts of very surprising things happening as we get closer. So I would say that people sitting in front of microphones as we are right now, who minimize the Trump factor do so at their peril. Yeah. But I'm going to minimize the Trump factor. <laughs> at your peril. All right. I think let's hear it. By the time even the primaries, which is what we're starting talking about yeah. are litigated in earnest. The debt ceiling is going to be a distant memory one way or another, right? I mean, even if we have the kind of can kick scenario to September, like <laughs> this stuff, we're barely getting into primary season in the fall. Now, how this gets resolved will matter. And as we've talked about, there's many possibly negative outcomes for a Kevin McCarthy. There are many ways in which, you know, this could be, you could see this as either a triumph of or the death of bipartisanship. Like both of those sort of extremes are, are on the table still. But I think that when Trump says things like he did in the CNN town hall about like, let's just default already and get it over with. It's like a very Trumpian thing to say. It's very, very on brand. I don't think there's a lot of people who are trying to hew. And by people, I mean on the right fringe of the Republican party who are trying to themselves be on brand for Trump. That's Trump's brand. It's not necessarily theirs. Now, that's different from not doing something to upset that particular sub-party line, but I don't really see bright lines being drawn by either Trump or, frankly, I'm assuming Ron DeSantis declares this week, later this week for president, and, you know, never say never, but, like, I would be surprised if he was drawing bright lines about the debt ceiling. It's just, you're kind of short of put if you're in either of their positions doing that because you don't know what's happening in the room. 
necessarily. And I don't think it's a high percentage shot for them to try to win accolades or otherwise be, you know, enhance their standing respectively, DeSantis in particular, by being an actor here specifically because of what I said to begin with, which is this is not going to be a topic six months from now. It might still be a topic three months from now, but you're running a lot of risk in doing that. And so I think that the ambitions of some of the people matter here, but the most important ambition is McCarthy keeping his job. But they don't want to get primary. Those Republicans don't want to get primaried. And if they, you know, I'm going to say something fairly cynical. It won't be the first time, (laughs) but there has been such a rightward shift already towards the, I hesitate to make this characterization, but if the the rightward shift is towards a more MAGA-like Republican, there's been such a shift already that the relevant actors here are not at risk of being primaried. All right. Well, Mike, excellent analysis as always. We'll see. I just put probabilities on things that are at least two of those non-zero probabilities are going to be wrong. Heaven forbid one of the zeros is wrong. 60% probability of a last-minute deal that puts this issue to bed until after the election. I very much hope you are correct on this one, sir. All righty. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.